0: Welcome to The Well Drop, Own Your Wellness. I'm your host, Amber Berger.
1: And I'm Dina Wismer. We are mothers, friends, wellness experts, and self-described warriors who have each experienced our own unique personal wellness journeys. We are your wellness friends,
0: here to give you drops of wisdom we've discovered over the years that actually work. Wellness, what is it really? The struggle is real, and we're here to help sift through the noise. Have you ever been wondering why we're all becoming more and more deficient in minerals and vitamins these days? In case you haven't noticed, supplements are taking over grocery store aisles and it is for good reason. It comes down to the food we are eating and how it is being raised. Dina and I are excited to welcome John Wood to the show today. He is the managing partner and fifth generation farmer of Grassland Beef, also known as Wellness Meats. Grassland Beef is a company founded in the mid-1990s that provides nutrient-rich, 100% grass-fed beef, lamb, bison, dairy, wild-caught seafood, free-range poultry, and heritage pork. For 20-plus years, the mission has been to offer nutritious, 100% grass-fed and pasture-raised meats from cleaner, greener, sustainable farms. Their products can be conveniently purchased online, and today we'll be discussing why it is important to know your food, know your farmer, and how to choose the right quality ingredients for your household. Thank you for joining us today, John. It's a pleasure to have you here on the Well Drop today. We love when people create amazing solutions to fit their own personal needs. Can you tell us a little bit about how Grassland Beef got started in the mid 1990s?
2: Well, thank you. uh, Thank you, Amber, for the very, very nice introduction. I came about this from a kind of a different angle. I was a graduate of Iowa State University back in the mid-70s and came back to a family business, and we were in the business of feeding corn to typical conventional uh, grain-fed beef. But I read uh, some Alan Savory, a book of Alan Savory's about 1992, which is Holistic Resource Management. He is um, born in England. He had the equivalent of our West Point military training at Sandhurst in England and and, uh, had a decorated military career, but he was a biologist. They sent him to Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, to stop desertification. Fascinating book, but he's probably the number one land manager on the planet knowing how to take deserts and turn them back into grassland. If you go back to Africa, you know, 300,000 years ago, there was no, there there were no deserts in in Northern Africa. And it was managed by uh, herbivores. You know, there were the zebras and and the camels and the bells and all these wild game animals, but they were managed by the predator population, which is interesting how that all worked. And so these animals would would graze in a group, sleep in a group, move on daily for fresh grass. And they maintain that planet really, really well. Iraq, for example, gets about 50 inches of rainfall annually. It all falls in about four months. And then the other other seven or eight months are fairly dry. So what happened when man came along, he got tired of being chased by the predators. And so he uh, started to Thin down the predator populations. And at some point, it got to the point where these animals lost their fear. So they would, the way I describe it, if you took, say you take eight or 10 friends to a local smorgasbord, and the owner only replenishes what you take out before, well, these animals are doing the same thing. They would they would graze an area, and, and, and after a period of time, you had overrested plants and you had overgrazed plants, and that's how the deserts were actually formed. Savory spoke, I guess I heard him speak in January of 93, and at that time, so- Somalia was in the front page of the news, Black Hawk Down, all that had just happened shortly before that. But he compared Somalia to the state of New Mexico. Both of them had similar climates, uh, similar stage of desertification going on. The only difference is, in Mexico, we have we have transportation for food and resources. People are still fairly civil in this country, and so you didn't have the, the problems you had in Somalia, where you had a shortage of food, and warlords uh, trying to take control But I was a Boy Scout back in the 1960s, and I can remember being up at Shelmont Scout Ranch looking down over the plains of New Mexico, and it was fairly green. I took some photographs of that, and I came back again 25 years later. I flew over the same area, flew into uh, Albuquerque for a meeting, and I was shocked at how the landscape had changed from green to brown. It, but New Mexico is probably still one of the most rapidly expanding deserts in the world today in our, in our Great Plains. But it's interesting. You look down on Google Earth and you see where all the rivers used to be. If you go back go back to, before the cattle and the sheep went through there in the in their late 1800s, it was a sea of grass. There was no, no landscape like we have today. So that, that whole thing got me intrigued. At that time, Savory had moved to the United States. He was run out of... Uh, Rhodesia or Zimbabwe, he was a had a military background, and he sided with the Afrikaners. He knew they were going to going to take over the country, and so they tried to accuse him of treason. So he had to leave one night about two in the morning, flew a private, private military aircraft out of the country to escape a firing squad the next morning. It's a spectacular story, but anyway. He's one of my mentors, and I was intrigued by the whole thing. And he spoke in in St. Joe, Missouri, back in January of 93, and I went over. There was about 80 people in the room, and there was a mix of university people. There was a mix of farmers, a mix of Amish, quite a a colorful crowd. But the thing that got me was he spoke for two hours without a note, just completely mesmerized the crowd. And he said, I want you to stand up, and I want you to, I want you to clear half of the room. Well, he'd already done the math, and our density on the floor space had gone up dramatically. Now I want you to clear three quarters of the room. We were just standing there, shoulder to shoulder. He'd already had the math figured out and That was the whole issue on stock density. So from a land standpoint, say so you have a regular home and you've got a yard, and just break that yard up on 30 blocks, and you're gonna mow one block a day, and 30 days later, you know, the original block is gonna be back 34 inches tall. And that was what he was trying to get to our heads. And I kind of absorbed all that. And so we were a long ways from selling the meat at that point. So I actually got lucky, went to a local restaurant, and sure enough, he was in the back. He spoke in the afternoon to a different group. And I said, I'd like to bring somebody in to kind of help us learn this process. So he was very cordial. And there were two people in the United States at that time that could teach his knowledge base. And he, he had arrived in, in the United States in the... In the late 70s, I think when he came into this, he actually moved to the state of Mexico. And uh, 15 years later, he had a number of farms that he put this managed practice into. And those that followed it were very, very successful. So, and the advantage we have in Missouri is it rains. We have, you know, 38 to 40 inches of rainfall a year. So, we can make change much quicker. So, we had two meetings, 93, 94, spring and fall. And the after those sessions there was a handful of us that decided that you know, maybe we should try to market beef off of our rolling grasslands. And at about that time, I uncovered some research by Dr. Michael Pervereza, University of Wisconsin. In the mid-80s, he was doing research on uh, charcoal broiling beef over, over, over charcoal. And there was a concern back in that era in the late 70s, early 80s, that charcoal was causing cancer. There was concern about the cancer thing. Now, what he discovered was... Something yeah. red meat was actually slowing the cancer process down. And it turns out it was conjugated linoleic acid or CLA. And that was a magic compound that he uncovered. It took a while to do that. So I thought, you mm-hmm. know, this is really interesting. It fights diabetes, takes on takes off fat, puts on lean muscles, polyunsaturated. This is pretty healthy stuff. But if you look back, there's a book written by John Fitzgerald. He's an author from California. I met him in, 2002 or three, and his family had been riddled with cancer. You know, he lost his parents, he lost aunts and uncles and siblings, and he did a deep dive in all the things in our environment that are causing health issues. And he got into the, the fluorides, he got into uh, MSG, which was developed by Japanese chemists in 1908, and he, he got into the grass-fed beef thing, which uh, if you think about it, back at the turn of the century, only 2% of us had diabetes. Diabetes was really, really rare. Cancer and heart disease wasn't really discussed until 1923, when heart disease made the news in the Mayo Clinic. And you know, oh, by the way, Cargill had lobbied the University of Minnesota around 1910 to do some plant breeding on the on, on wheat, which is what you know, America made a lot of bread back in the 1800s. Oh, by the way, the bread they consumed in the 1800s is far better than what we consume today. So, what Cargill did is they encouraged the plant breeders to put more starch into the kernel, so it would mill easier, and they get a little more volume out of what they were making. So, they altered the, the genotype of the, of the wheat that we were raising pre-1910, and so now we have, as you discussed in the introduction, the mineral content of that wheat was not near as good as we have before. So with the increase in gluten and 15 years later, lo and behold, we started having heart issues.
0: Is it because the grazing methods changed when raising cattle that that led to then desert land? Because I think people may not realize that a lot of American land has become malnourished and desert-like.
2: The cattle really haven't changed. What happened, we'll we'll jump over to World War II after World War II, there was a huge amount of ammonia nitrite, which is what you make bombs out of. That was the primary ingredient for the bombs in World War II. Well, they had a huge stockpile of this. Uh, it's really fertilizer that you been utilized as fertilizer since, since that time frame. So what happened was they had a excess of this problem. They went to the land grant universities, which are in every state. And so we need to get rid of all this ammonia nitrite fertilizer. So what they did is they said, so, gee, it'll, it'll be great for farm ground. You can increase more corn. So the corn yields went from 30 bushel per acre, 19, we'll say 1944, and by 1952, the corn yields had doubled, they were 60, 60 bushels an acre. So you, then all of a sudden we had this glut, too much grain, prices, you know, went really bad, went, went down, farmers are unhappy. So now they go back to land grant universities again, we got a problem. We double the corn yield about five or six years. And how do we get rid of all this corn? Well, chickens eat a very small amount every day. Pigs, a pound a day, maybe swine, or very, very small amounts of corn. Well, the old uh, beef animal over here, that that guy can eat 20 to 25 pounds a day. And up until that point, almost all the beef raised in the United States, up until the 1950s, was all grass-fed beef. The genetics were designed that way. Shorter animals, big heart girths, and there's some of those genetics still around. But my father told me in the 1950s, uh, they bring three-year-old grass fed steers out in the Sandhills in Nebraska to Omaha, Nebraska, and the restaurants in Chicago and New York City would fight over those animals. That's where the really good steaks came from. Northern California, I talked to an older gentleman who uh, is now deceased, but as a boy, he says the same thing in, in February in Northern California. That's when the winter rains would come, and they take these three-year-old grass fed steers, and they, they fed the restaurants in Los Angeles
0: and San Francisco. So... So grass-fed beef is how this country was built. That is the majority of how when we consumed meat, our meats as well as maybe our chickens were all grass-fed. And then the corn is what had made the change, you're saying, in the 1950s as the feed for the animals.
2: On the bovine or or the beef cattle... Uh, It's got four stomachs. Pigs have one stomach, chickens have one stomach, but beef animals have four. The first stomach is a fermentation vat. Think of cheese and whiskey or wine and meals are all fermented foods. But when you take grass or forage and you digest that in the rumen, which is a fermentation vat, the pH is around seven, uh, which is kind of how God intended those animals to, to, to process their natural diet off of the land. When you take that same animal and you convert it over a period of two weeks into a corn diet, the pH goes from 7 down to 4.5 to 5 in that range, very acidic. And, oh, by the way, the bacteria that do the fermentation, the the billions of bacteria in the pH 7 stomach, they all die off at about pH 6. So you have a completely different family of of digestive bacteria in in the grain-fed stomach. And that has a chain reaction. You go from an omega-6-3 ratio and the uh, and the and the, and the grass-fed animal, which is about 2 to 1, 3 to 1, which is very healthy. Uh, but when you fill a whole of grain and you change the rumen pH and you change the bacteria population, that, that omega-6-3 ratio goes out to 18 to 20 to 1. And- so I think
0: that's such a great point that you bring up because I think most people don't realize that, that a lot of the toxins that can be in our body. We don't even realize that we're doing it to ourselves. And that omega six ratio is a big factor. And that also is in different seed oils and can lead to other problems within your body. And that a two to one ratio is what you strive for, what you're saying is in grass fed. You're a hundred percent correct. Can you
1: explain the, the ratio again though? Because I think that for those who are not familiar with it, to understand what that means
2: yeah, exactly, I'll repeat that again. The, the, the grazing diet, an animal eating 100% forage with zero starch in the diet, that rumen pH, which is the first stomach, around pH seven. And I've checked that before. You actually can take litmus paper and, and check the urine of an animal if you haven't catch it just right. It should be, that litmus paper should be pH seven. I did this you know, years ago just to kind of prove this to myself. And when you take the same animal and you convert it into a corn digesting animal, these animals will eat 20 to 25 pounds of corn a day with a little bit of roughage to cool it off a touch. But when you transform it from a forage digester to a starch digester, the pH goes from seven down to four and a half or five, five and a half, very acidic. And the bacteria family that digests forage uh, will not take the acidic environment. So those, that, rumen population or the bacteria population, the billions of those guys and there were animals, completely changed families. It's like in in Southern football terms, you, you've got Alabama fans and Auburn fans. We're going to pick on Alabama. We've actually got some animals in South Alabama. You have complete different families to take over. So what happens when you have the, the starch digestion, your Omega-6-3 ratio goes up to 18 to 20 to 1. And omega-6 fats cause a lot of issues. The omega And then the ratio in the grazing animal is 2 to 1, 3 to 1. I've actually had some 1 to 1 lab tests, which is beautiful stuff. If you're really after omega-3s, you know, I recommend the wild-caught salmon. That's just sky-high in omega-3s. There's no omega-6s there at all.
1: Can you be specific about the issues that you're referring to for omega-6? For omega-6.
2: Grass-fed, be, the ratio is... Two or three parts omega 6, one part omega 3.
1: Yes, and you said that having too much omega 6 can cause a lot of issues. That's
2: correct. Omega 6 are inflammatory fats, and we need some every day for our brain, but we get way too many. Omega 3s are non inflammatory fats. Omega 3s, and one of the interesting stories, we did a trade show in the early 2000s with uh, John Bailey, who owns Iron Man Magazine, We went out to Los Angeles and, and our first attempt in the, into the trade show world. And there was a strongman contest there. With these guys that pick up the logs and do these gargantuan things, and I didn't think they'd pay any attention to us. Well, to my surprise, on about the third day, they came over. One of these guys was about two hundred seventy-five pounds and six feet seven. He just—they're just—they were—they just, were, they were good people. They turned out to be really good friends, but they were having issues. Um, they were trying to eat three to four pounds of ground beef a day, and the commodity product they were eating, it they, they just wouldn't go through, and they were constipated. And they said, we'd like to try some of the grass-fed beef. And I said, no problem. I'll give you guys some samples. But what they discovered was they could eat up to four pounds of grass-fed meat. a day. went through them just like salmon. They just loved it. They started to procure pretty large quantities. But what was interesting was about six or seven weeks in, it wasn't how much stronger they were at that point. But John Anderson, who still lives around the Bay Area of San Francisco, he said, my, my knees feel better. My elbows feel better. Well, you're eating four pounds a day of ground meat like that, and you're getting a lot of omega-3s, the omega-3 effect took over really quickly. I was really interested. And we've, we've had the New York Giants football team for about 10 or 12 years till COVID hit and the chef retired. But They were keeping track of injuries and and recoveries, and they could see a
0: difference. And that's I love that you uh, were big Giants fans over here. Our sons will be proud (laughs) to hear that. I, I I'm so fascinated. I like that you are really involved in our testing. You know, the soil and testing your animals to learn about the different nutrient contents of grass fed versus commercially raised. Can you speak a little bit about the different nutritional? changes from grass-fed, you know, I know that they have better good fats, higher in vitamin E, also we said higher in omega-3s, lower in omega-6s. Can yeah. you speak about the different tests that you've performed and what you've discovered through those? Well,
2: yes, we do, we've done a lot of lab work, and, and it's very expensive to do it, but I, I wanted to know what we were doing. But you've got uh, branch chain amino acids uh, go up, uh, and if you're, if you're an athlete, those are key Key amino acids for athletic performance. Uh, obviously, when you're eating green grass and 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 you're you're fermenting that, your your vitamin A content's going to go up. You're going to get vitamin A out of those animals. And uh, uh, and one of the things that's really neat is the is the organs. Or you know we sell lots of organ meats: uh, liver, heart, kidney. We've got combinations now. We've got a raw ground product, with liver, heart, and kidney in it. We've been selling liverwurst for long, long time and that's got heart liver kidney. And if you're French, German or Russian background, you just eat it like candy. And Dr. Eric Berg is a doctor in the in the D C area who gives great great exposure to liverwurst. Brown is another organ meat that's thirty five percent liver and sixty five percent ground beef. But the organs in these in these grass fed animals are very, very nutritious and Iowa State did a study back in 1999. They were using hydrogenated safflower oil, which is not economically feasible to give to livestock, but it has the same CLA properties. It's got the conjugated linoleic acid in it. And they did a trial on pigs in the winter of 1999-2000. The pigs had 25% less back fat and 10% larger loin eyes. You know, some lean muscle uh, reducing fat, increasing lean muscle. And it was you know, and pigs the same stomach as what you and I do. And we had several figure fitness models back in the day that were actually buying our ground beef, 75% ground beef, eating up for breakfast and eating flank steaks, you know, for, for the evening meal, they were after the protein and after, you know, after that, you know, from a workout daily. So, you know, basically you've got branched chain amino acids, you've got higher levels of, of vitamin E and vitamin A coming out of the, coming out of the solar activity off of green plants. And, there was a study done by Mark Schatzker, who wrote a book called Steak. It was a New York Times bestseller, probably about two thousand nine or eight or ten. And it had a picture of a fork and a piece of nice piece of steak on top of it. But what he discovered, he went around the what's North America, South America, and went to Europe and he was looking for the best steak on the planet. And he traveled with three biochemists. And so they were they finally found and I was surprised in France the animal that won the prize was a was a Scottish Highlander, and these are these animals that have the shaggy hair over their eyes and long horns, and, and I was kind of surprised when it came out of that animal. But what they found where the real flavor comes from, and we we discovered the same thing in 1997. We harvested the very first grass-fed animal. Here I am, you know, I've been been a cattle feeder for 20 some odd years, and thinking this is going to be a joke, and I took the animal to the local country locker. I said, I'm not sure this is going to be fit for steaks. Call me when you get the hide off of it. He said, Well. He called me the next day, he said, a grade low choice. I said, no, I can't grade low choice. Nothing, zero grain at all. And I went over and looked at it. Sure enough, the marbling was there. The back fat was not there like the other animals hanging up in the cooler. And so we cut some steaks out of it. We sat around a barbecue grill one night, three of the founders, and we had a piece of prime Hereford beef, which was, I mean, t- stupid fat. And we all three said the grass had a better flavor. And we cut it with a plastic knife and a fork. And we thought it was a flu. We just didn't believe it. We're from the Shelby State of Missouri. So we had to do this again. Did it again in 98, and then did it again in 99. And we did six animals. We had several families that arrested. And that's when we got a little smarter. And we sent samples off to Iowa State. Dr. Don Bites, who's back, I think he's still there. He'd been on campus for 60 years, I think. He was all excited. He said, this is great. I've always been wanting a real sample of this stuff. And he was the one doing the swine project with hydrogenated sapphire oil. So it came back really good. And that's when we made the decision to start the business. University of Illinois also did the same testing and they went into the local supplement store. You mentioned about supplements taken over the grocery stores and there was five different brands, four or five brands of a a CLA supplement. And I, I can tell you that Merck's and and several of the major pharmaceutical companies have tried to make cla for years it's not a stable compound when made synthetically and i think tomlin was a one in fact this dr mike parisa actually was advocating tomlin which is one you'll still find i think on the shelf but but what the researcher discovered every bottle she picked up uh several were just benign compounds several were really really weren't the best for you, but none of them were actually true to CLA. They had oxidized, sitting on the shelf. And so the only real way to get CLA in your diet is to buy grass-fed you know, beef, lamb, dairy.
1: What you're saying is blowing my mind, frankly, because I feel like we hear time and time again in this country, red meat is bad for you. And what I'm hearing you say, and, and please tell me if I'm repeating it accurately, is that if you are buying high-quality grass-fed meat There is huge health benefit from consuming it if you know where it's coming from. Exactly. Um, And that to me is a huge takeaway, honestly. And, And especially when you're talking about the charcoal and all of that, we hear constantly to stay away from things like that. And so.
0: And also for the taste, too. I think that my husband is a big foodie, and so are my kids. And my husband, you know, I really make an effort to find grass fed meat if I'm going to eat meat outside. And some people think I'm, they call me crazy. And they really think that the taste is not as good as regular meat. Can you discuss, I mean, I love that you actually already mentioned about the taste test that you had with your partners of the grass-fed versus commercially fed. Some people would say it's too lean, there's not enough fat, and it's not as tasty. What would you say to those people who have those opinions? Well,
2: that's been one of the common problems in the industry. And Usually when you hear those stories, somebody has harvested a mother cow uh, that didn't have a calf or lost a calf, and they're going to take her out of the herd, and she's four or five years of age, and there's no comparison. I mean, it's done, unfortunately, too many people do this because they start a business, they can't produce enough. We call them under 30 animals. You want these animals under 30 months of age when they're young, and that's when the muscle fibers are are really, really conducive to, to better eating flavor. But what happens if you, you can make three mistakes to grass-fed beef. Number one, you can buy meat that comes out of an older animal anywhere from three years to 10 years of age and it's been done. They'll take the tenderloins out, they'll take the strip loins out, and the ribeyes, those are the three better muscles. But you cannot compare a cow to a young animal. It's it just, it, the meat will never be the same. There were some ranchers that... Just to to be
1: clear, do you mean health and taste, or are you just referring specifically to taste when you talk about young versus old?
2: Well, the the muscle fibers are different in that young animal compared to the older animal. The older animals have been on the planet longer, walk longer. The muscles are just a little tougher, and that's just like poultry. If you buy a free-range chicken that's seven or eight weeks of age, it's going to eat like butter, and you'll never go back to the grocery store and buy another commodity chicken. But if you buy a spent, what they call a spent hen, which is a hen that's been laying eggs for three or four years, that's why they boil those things. That's why they put them in a the stock pot. I mean, it, it's, it's the same, same theory as compared to that. Then the other issue with grass-fed meat, and this is another interesting story. I've learned all these lessons the hard way, by the way. But if you take a grain-fed steak, a grain-fed ribeye, say 15 ounces, put it on the grill. And you take a grass-fed ribeye, fifteen ounces, put it beside the grain-fed ribeye. When the grain-fed ribeye is medium medium rare, the grass-fed is going to be well done. And when you change the rumen pH or the pH of this first stomach, you change the entire fatty acid portfolio of that meat. The grass-fed animal can almost be equally fat, but the heat will go through the muscle faster than what the grain-fed animal does. It's just because the differences in the in the fatty acid chemistry.
0: That is actually very. That's a good point.
2: Once you learn that, I there was a chef in St. Louis I met years ago. He was actually a biochemist. He went to Temple University. He was going to go to med school, but he had a college job being a chef, and he enjoyed cooking so much he never went on to med school. So he was the first guy I ever met in a kitchen and knew exactly what CLA was. And he was a fascinating guy. He bought filets uh, from us and, and, and New York strip steaks and, and kept them frozen. He taught his sous chefs on the on – the, on the, it was a big restaurant. He said, I never throw anything away. I cook everything from the frozen standpoint. So one of the tricks that I've learned at trade shows is we'll take a little infrared oven, uh, turbo oven, whatever you want to call them, and we never thaw the steak out. We actually cook it from the frozen position. So the tr- secret on cooking, one of the secrets I've learned is that you want to take the steak, you don't want to thaw it out and let the let the juice you know, fall out of it. You want to cook it in a frozen position with these little air cookers.
0: When I feel I have an issue with cooking grass fed meat at home, maybe because I'm thawing it out and it's exactly yep. what you're not supposed to do.
2: <laughs> no, that's one of the tricks. And and one of the things that we do, and this is one of our, one of our secrets is, and I learned this by dumb luck in 2000, when we harvested the first animals, there was a, a university of Missouri professor who had just done an internship with a company called PM beef. They were no, no longer with us in the business world, but they were wet aging primals. When you harvest the animal, you, you break the animal to like 20 or 22 different muscles. You got the ribeye and the brisket and the strip loin, and you got a sirloin, you inside skirt, outside skirt, plank stakes. Be various cuts, and they go into an individual plastic bag, cryback bag, seal bag, and they would leave it set for 30 days, 45 days. And that, and in that, in that airless environment, there's enzymatic activity meat is alive until it gets to be zero degrees. In fact, it, uh, meat will not freeze until it gets to 28 degrees or colder because of the biological activity going on inside of a piece of meat and the organs are, organs got to be 25 degrees for they'll freeze just because of the biological activity inside, inside of like the liver, for example. So, but anyway, this aging process uh, smooths out the flavor profile and makes the meat even more tender. So most people are in a hurry. You know, they, they, they want to, Harvested on Monday. They want to sell it to a restaurant on Friday and get paid for it. We learn rather quickly that we, that we don't do that. I mean, all of our steaks and roasts have used to have been wet-aged in, in this plastic bag anywhere from 30 days to, to 50 days before we cut. And every every day you wait, it just gets better. The only issue you run into is a, is a small percentage of people that are histamine and, intolerant, and that's kind of a new phenomenon yep. that's come about. But but the lambs we harvest, uh, lambs don't have enough fat, so they're actually harvested and, and packaged rather, rather quickly within two or three days. So I'll Can tell you- people about. buy
1: Talk to us a little bit about price points for your meats and, and how accessible they are.
2: We feel like we're really competitive on price. We try to make it affordable so that anybody can buy it. We're not selling fillets for $80 a pound. I've seen crazy stuff like that. But where the where the bargains are, you can buy like an inside round muscle, which is, weighs about 15 pounds, uh, 12 to 15 pounds. That's like $7 and change, I think. And you can cut roast out of that thing. You can cut steaks out of it. If you've got a little meat grinder in the kitchen, you can do your own grinding. If you buy like a primal ribeye or a strip loin, primal ribeye is six and a quarter pounds. It's steak ready. It'll save you probably 30% over buying the steak. So if you've got a butcher knife and a cutting board, you can cut your own steaks and you can refreeze them. Or, you know, a lot of people figure that out. They sell, We sell lots of primals. And so we try to make it affordable. And ground beef is usually a really good buy. Back when COVID was going on, we were actually cheaper, you know, at our little retail store here locally than what the local grocery store was because they marked everything up dramatically because meat was hard to come by. So, but if you're, if you're on a free tight budget, number one, I tell you not to buy the bison. Bison is rare and, and expensive, but you can buy primal mussels. You can take advantage of those, of those pricings. And uh, one of the other nutrient dense foods that we sell, which is quite unique is we sell pemmican. Pemmican I had a trainer come to me back in 2002 out on Long Island. Uh, John DeFlorio is his name, Glencoe of New York. I still remember the name and the town. And he asked us if we could make pemmican. I said, well, I've heard of it, but I, we've never made it, obviously. This was a Native American recipe. And so he had gone to Russia in, in 2001, I think. One of three Americans that won a lottery. And they were meeting with these old strength coaches that were 85, 90 years of age and been around in the 1930s and 40s. And they would force feed those Russian weightlifters, you know, three to five pounds a day of pemmican. And we sell a a 2.1 ounce pemmican bar and it's got like 230 calories and and, um, 13 grams of protein. And I eat probably two or three of those things a day. I'm probably the number one pemmican consumer in North America. (laughs) I've developed a real taste for the stuff. But we've had professional athletes take them Take him into you know one of the Yankee baseball players it was a pemmican jockey and he was uh, really good home run hitter and we used to laugh about that.
0: Love that. I think that um, helping to shift people's habits is a really good point and being affordable too to order your quality meats online and bring it into your home. For those who want to find it in a grocery store, can we discuss labeling for a moment? Because I think that people like myself even it's overwhelming. You know. What should we buy? What's free-range, pasture-raised? Should it only be also grass-fed, grass-finished? Because some things are grass-fed, grain-finished. What are kind of the main words that people should look at when they are trying to purchase their meat?
2: The terminology changed in 2005. It used to be grass-fed was mama's milk all the way to harvest, and then several of the major food companies decided to kind of tinker with that definition. And then they switched it around so that it was going to be grass finished it was all the way from mama's milk to, to harvest. So the, they left the word grass fed, you know, they could play games with that and actually feed some grain. So Marianne Burroughs is a highly respected tube critic, food writer for the New York Times. She got involved and I met her about 2003 and she lobbied for us pretty heavily, but we were up against a lot of lawyers. And uh, USDA, there have been a There's been a long litany on that, but I just tell people know your food, know your farmer, try to figure out who you're buying the product from. And sometimes a meat manager, you know, you get a good meat manager in a Trader Joe's or a place like that, you know, he's going to be able to tell you kind of where it comes from. And those are the questions you want to ask.
1: So that's a great suggestion. You should talk to your butcher, whether it's in a supermarket or a local butcher, you should actually have conversations so that you can know where, and, and of course I would imagine you're a big advocate for family farms. Generally, I mean,
0: That's But why does
1: a family farm matter for all the reasons I imagine that you've stated so far today?
0: We're big believers in you are what you eat. Can you also touch upon how animals are raised and how that can affect you when you're ingesting that kind of meat?
2: Absolutely. And and What I go back to is uh, this kind of gets into the land issue again, but these animals lead to really utopian lifestyle because we try to move them on a daily basis into fresh grass on our farms. We actually have uh, cattle being raised in Missouri and Illinois. We actually have some land down in, in the southern tip of Alabama, below I-10, 15 miles from Orange Beach and fifteen to five miles from Mobile Bay. So we have a winter spot down there where we can produce lots of beef with grass year round. It's a pretty neat deal. But what happens with these animals, we'll just go back to your yard again. If you have a yard around your house, if you turn one animal loose there and let him run around your house all summer, if he's going to eat where he feels like it, he's going to he's gonna let the grass grow up and get too tall in spots and too short in other spots. So what we're trying to do here is put enough animal density out here, 75,000 pounds to the acre, or 100,000 pounds and you can manage it. And that way the animals going uniformly clip off the pasture. And over, after 25 years, what happens is when that's when I call the magic. I've got some land, I I, I purchased my parents farm in 1983 and conventionally farmed it for about 10 years and then started switching the thing over to grass. And I've gone from 1% organic matter, which is, which is you know, the beautiful nutrient in the soil that retains soil moisture, helps plants grow. I'm up to 5 or 6% now, uh, which I had a local soil tester do some commercial testing this winter. And he was shocked. He said, I've never seen soils like this. Well, that's, you know, that's, um, that's the magic of doing managed grazing over time. And, uh, but... When you do that these animals just lead a luxurious life i mean every day they see you coming on your little four-wheeler they know you're going to go in a new paddock they just wait there patiently we have a single wire electric fence nothing complicated they go in all put their heads down and they get their evening meal and and, uh, they become highly trained as to what's going on but when you do that you improve the nutrition of the animal you improve the nutrition of the soil when you raise that organic matter up to that level, and and these plants actually root deeper. You've got plants that will actually, instead of being six inches of a shallow root system, you know they're they're down the ground two or three four feet deep, and they're bringing up minerals that haven't been touched for a long time. We've had an extreme drought in this part of the state this year, and I'm the only farm in the county who has any grass left. You I mean i I've managed it very well. I still have a few paddocks to graze that haven't been grazed at all. I I graze cover crops in April and May uh, that I plant in the fall, and we've learned how to really manage real estate, and it's just been fun. But I tell anybody, what you have to understand is if you start doing this for the first time, after three years, you will double the amount of grass production that your farm will produce, but given those rest cycles.
1: I have to tell you, hearing you speak today gives me a little bit of hope for the future, because if there are people like you out there who not only care about what we're consuming and putting in our bodies, how we're treating animals, and what you just mentioned, how we're treating the land on which we're all living. Considering that we're all sitting in crazy heat and the water is 101 degrees where Amber is right now in Florida, it gives me a lot of hope that there are farmers like you out there who are caring for our environment and our world and the people who are using it. You know, Thank you. Thank you for making your products available and for being so incredibly thoughtful and sharing the stories. The history is so important to understand how we got to where we are today, why it's largely problematic, and what we can do, which is what you are doing, to try to improve the situation. We're very grateful to have you share all that information with us well, today.
2: Thank you for, for the kind words, but the interesting story is there's another organization called the Grassfed Exchange, which is .com, and that was probably 12 years ago. I was on the original, I guess, committee on that thing, and I was active in it for the first seven or eight years. But we had, uh, it always amazed me, we've had these annual gatherings, and we've got them in about eight or 10 states, I think now. We started out in Nebraska, and then we went to South Dakota. They've been in Montana. They've been in California, Texas, Missouri, Georgia, New York, uh, some states of interest. But what we attracted in those meetings was young people, and you know, we were attracting you know, college students, high school students, and we actually had a one of these or the hedge fund that was kind of intrigued what we were up to, and they were they gave us some money so we were able to, to buy plane tickets, and these kids would come in. But there was a lot of enthusiasm because commercial agriculture it's, it's very difficult to get into that business because the capital requirements are so high. But you take a young person, a male or female, that loves livestock, uh, sheep, goats, or beef cattle, and and you'll find people that will give you the land if, if you'll manage a real estate. And there's several people who have done great jobs of going out here and, and managing someone's you know, land that's overgrown with trees and sprouts and, and put managed grazing into effect. And you can clean up some property. So there's a group of people in this country that really, really are enthused about trying to do more of this. And and the other little antidote to it is, if you take a look at Argentina, Argentina is the highest per capita consumption Of grass fed beef in the world. Up until about 2010, almost all the beef consumed in Argentina was grass fed, coming out of the Pampas region of Argentina. And they had lower incidences of heart disease, diabetes, and cancer than we do in this country. And they had the highest per capita consumption of red meat of anybody in the world. The major corporate food companies, and I won't name them by names, you know what I'm talking about, they promote anything that you can buy in a box where they can put gluten and starch and and they had 25 ingredients. Those folks, you know, told one of the biggest crimes in, in history in the late 1960s when they turned the food pyramid upside down. You're probably aware of that. I mean, we used to put eggs at the top and beef at the top and they went to the bottom and, and you know, cereals and all these sort of cheap foods that you can make and make a lot of money on went to the top. And that's when we, that's when the health of this country flipped. It's, if you take a look, we were told fat is bad. And if you look at the uh, dementia and Alzheimer's cases up until about 1970, it wasn't a big deal. But when we took the fat out of the diet, look what the chart did—it went straight up. My uh, my mother tragically uh, believed that story, and my father continued to just eat the butter and eat, eat all those fat foods and. His mind sharp sharps attack, and my mother developed dementia. So I've seen this really close and personal. And I probably, like I said, I'm probably one of the highest fat consumers that you talked to recently. I eat a lot of grass-fed animal fats, and eat a lot of butter and all those sort of things. But I think it's really good for my overall health. I'm a, Probably good shape for my age, uh, luckily so far, anyway.
0: John, you are a wealth of knowledge. I think we could spend the whole day talking to you, and we love hearing your stories, and I really appreciate you sharing your stories with our community and helping to just shine a light on why grass-fed is so important, and it's not just for meat, but it's also for the chickens and pork, and that... You really need to start shifting our habits and bringing food into our house if you're going to eat meat, making sure that it is quality meat that you're eating. And I also feel that when you're eating these highly dense, nutrient-rich foods, they actually are more satisfying than eating You know, if you're eating a commercial meat versus a grass fed, you'll be much more satisfied maybe eating a smaller piece and eating a big commercially made steak that's sort of empty in nutrients because your body is not being satisfied with all the amino acids and so forth that we need in order to thrive. We definitely would love to have you back because we've run out of time, but we have a lot more that we would love to discuss with you. And we appreciate your time and your knowledge and your hard work. And hopefully one day, Dean and I can come and visit your farm. we and would love that.
2: open, and Amber and Nina, I thank appreciate your time and talents, and, and putting this together today. And we're always glad to visit. So, uh, once it rains and our pastures green up, you can. I'll uh, actually provide plane tickets to fly to fly to St. Louis, and we'll and we'll give you the world tour. So, thank,
1: thank you so much, John. We really appreciate everything.
2: Very good. Thank you. Goodbye.
0: Have a thank you. Day. Take care. Subscribe to The Well Drop on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Share with a friend who can benefit from listening, too. Follow us on social media at The Well Drop. The Well Drop podcast and content posted by Amber Berger and Dina Wismer is presented solely for general informational, educational, and entertainment purposes. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast or website is at the user's own risk. It is not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, professional coach, psychotherapist, or other qualified professional, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical or mental health condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered health advice. The WellDrop is not responsible for any losses, damages, or liabilities that may arise from the use of this podcast.